want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We are continuing our journey in Ephesians, going to chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. All right, so I know how much you guys love pop culture, right? I hear you guys talking all about Adele's new weight loss and Ariana Grande's birthday party or how we just need more Britney Spears these days. I'm, I'm just kidding. Some of you may not even know who those people are, and I actually sort of envy you for that. Uh, but today I want to talk about two big figures in pop culture, and you're bound to know these names. Kanye West and Justin Bieber. Uh, and the reason I want to talk about them is because they both call themselves Christians. Uh, they both consider themselves a Christian. Uh, and I don't know if they are because I don't know them personally, and, and I can't make that call, right? I can't just look at them and be like, yeah, that's Christian. I, I can, you can kind of look at them and be like, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but, but to me, even for two people that call themselves Christians, I, I can see a big difference between them. Uh, when Kanye got saved, and just very recently, he uh, released an album called Jesus is King. Uh, and here's a sample of, of his lyrics from that album. He sings in a much better way than I can. Uh, every breath that ha- Everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Worship Christ with the best of your portions. I know I won't forget all he's done. He's the strength in this race that I run. You won't ever be the same when you call on Jesus' name. Listen to the words I'm saying. Jesus saved me, now I'm saying. And I know God is the force that picked me up. I know Christ is the fountain that filled my cup. Now, Justin Bieber, on the other hand, he, he's called himself a Christian for quite a while. Uh, and, and recently he's kind of had a, he, he, I guess you could say he rededicated his life to Christ, right? He strayed and he, he came back and he released a song shortly after that. Uh, and his song is called Yummy. Uh, And here's a sample of those lyrics. Yeah, you got that yummy yum, that yummy yum, that yummy yummy. Yeah, you got that yummy yum, that yummy yum, that yummy yummy. Say the word on my way. Yeah, babe. Yeah, babe. Yeah, babe. There's a reason I'm not a pop icon. Like I said, I, I can't tell you whether or not one is a Christian or, or, or not or what, you know, the validity of their faith. I just can't tell you that. But I am inclined to say that Kanye gets it. Right? I'm, I'm inclined to say that he, he gets it, right? He, he still kind of says some weird things. He's still kind of out there in some ways. But I'm inclined to say, yeah, he seems like he gets it. And, and that's because, though, the reason I mention this is because when you're saved, there should be a drastic change. So it's the difference between night and day. It's the difference between the colors black and the color white. And the reason is because the power that raises you when you're saved is the same power that raises Christ from the dead. So it's the difference between being dead and decomposing and alive and whole. There can be no such thing as a halfway Christian. There should be no such thing as a Christian where maybe we don't know if they're a Christian or not, even though they say that they are. There should be a change. And that's the story of every Christian. You're either radically saved or hopelessly dead. We all at one time were hopelessly dead, but now we're radically saved in Christ, and so the change is drastic. 
wonderfully, marvelously drastic. So what I like to do is to turn to our passage, and I want us to see the way in which God has drastically changed us. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and unfortunately the verses aren't on the screen today. So, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One thing that my dad likes to try to remind me and my brother of is, is about how we were raised. So, so he'll either say like, hey, don't forget, this is how I raised you. Or if we're kind of like not agreeing with him on a certain thing, that's not how you were raised. You know, he loves to remind us how we were raised. And, and he wants to do that because he wants to bring us back to our roots. And that's what Paul doesn't want us to forget either, especially because our roots in Christ far surpass all others, far surpasses all others. So that's why the first thing that we see is God's assessment of us. God's assessment of us. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus that in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses, in your trespasses and sins. The first thing that is true of, a, of all of us is that at one time we were dead. This is true of every human being. Apart from God saving you, you are dead. This is important because God doesn't look down on the earth and, and see a bunch of bad people. Uh, or good people doing bad things. And, and he doesn't even see uh, people who are, are trying to cry out to him or seeking him. He looks down and sees dead people. God looks down and sees a mass graveyard filled with billions of people. What can dead people do? Nothing. Dead people can't do anything. They can't cry for help. They can't move a muscle. If you go outside right now to our cemetery and you sit out there waiting for one of these dead people to do something, you'll be waiting for a long time. Because dead people don't do anything. Before you came to Christ, there was nothing you could do because you were dead. As dead as those people out there. You couldn't even make Christ turn toward you. Why? Because you were dead. You couldn't pray a true prayer. Why? Because you were dead. 
You couldn't get rid of your sin. Why? Because you were dead. You couldn't even want to be freed from your sin. Why? Because you were dead in every sense of the word. Dead thoughts, dead hearts, dead emotions, dead desires, dead wants, dead hopes, dead dreams, dead. Dead. If the Bible attributes anything to us that we can do, it's that we love to live with abandon with our in our sin. Right? Look at what Paul says. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we, we could do something. We could walk in our sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Walking in sin and living in sin and loving sin has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with our nature. Right? Sin isn't some external action that you do apart from you that, that makes you a little bit bad. You sin because by your nature you are a sinner. God's assessment of us was that at one time we were dead, and if there was one thing we were doing, it was following and walking and living in our sin with relish, giving God every reason why he should not save us. It doesn't matter if you were a drug addict or raised in a church or raised in a Christian home. All of us need Christ desperately because all of us were at one time dead. Your, your Christian parents don't impart a living nature to you. What they impart to you is a dead nature that needs to be raised. Whether it's a Christian home or an atheist home, what Paul says is we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible doesn't describe humans with some secret or, or, or hidden ability to, to seek God or turn to God. The Bible describes us as unable and even unwilling to seek God. And that's the danger of being a religious person or being raised in a Christian home. Is it the failure, it's the failure to see yourself as dead apart from Christ. Right? Because as long as you do some good things, you don't see yourself as hopelessly dead. That's what the Pharisees thought. You're dead. A dead prayer, praying, is just as dead as the drug addict who's injecting. God's assessment of us is bleak. It's bleak. I remember I was caught in a lightning storm. I was camping with a friend. We were caught in this lightning storm, and I had hurt my knee, so I'm like having to lay on my back. And he's reading the first aid manual of like what to do in different situations, and he reads the the lightning strike part. And he all he does is he looks at me and he says, "Man, this is bleak. This is really bleak." And it is. It is. It's bleak for a reason. the The first aid book is like it's bleak because don't mess with lightning. Okay, don't mess around with lightning. And the Bible is bleak to say you are hopeless apart from Christ. And your hope is not to just pray a sinner's prayer. You need desperate intervention or else you are doomed. So, with that bleak message comes 
two of the sweetest words in all of scripture. But God. But God. You were dead, but God. This is who you were, but God. You couldn't help yourself, but God. You were on your way to an eternity of condemnation, but God. That's why, secondly, we see God's intervention for us. Um, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher in the 1900s in Wales. And, and if you don't know Martin Lloyd-Jones, you should acquaint yourself with him. Read his books, listen to his sermons. Uh, you can find many of them online. Uh, but he, he wrote this whole sermon, and it's one of his, fa- one of his fam- most famous sermons, just on these two words, but God. And these two words, but God, changed the course of history, and they changed the course of your destiny if you are in Christ. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So what initiated God's saving intervention? What was it that caused him to, to move toward us and save it? Was it because we were deserving was it because there were a few people who were like trying to call their way to God? Was it because one of us cried out to God for help? No. What initiated God's salvation was God's own mercy. I had a friend tell me one time, God doesn't show mercy to you because you deserve it. God shows mercy to you because he is merciful. That's his nature to be merciful. Just as someone's nature might be uh, to, to just joke all the time, God's nature is to be merciful. It's what he loves to do. So, so do you see the difference? God's mercy to me isn't dependent on any action I do for him or against him. Right? His mercy to me does not depend on anything I do for him or anything I do against him. His mercy to me is entirely free and it flows from a nature that is in itself merciful. In other words, God is so entirely rich in mercy in himself that that mercy alone is enough to rescue us. But it's not just mercy, it's also what Paul says, because of the great love with which he loved us. God, in eternity past, set his affection on you. Nothing you do can change that. Before you ever did anything good or bad, he set his loving, divine affection on you. He set his love on you. And and he loves you with a divine and passionate love while you are at your worst. That's what Paul says, right? But because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, right? When we're dead, not doing anything to earn God's love, doing everything to to disavow and, and, and reject God's love, he loves us anyway. And all of this is by wonderful Undeserved, unchanging, infinite grace. Paul says at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And God raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that, Christian? Right now, 
you are raised and seated with Christ. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Listen to that. God doesn't save us so that we owe him. He doesn't save us because he needs our praise. He doesn't save us because he needs our worship. He didn't save us to get anything from us. God saved us to show just how good he is. God saved us to show us how awesome he is. When all you could do was walk in sin and trespasses. When by nature the only thing that you could inherit was God's wrath, he has now saved you so that you inherit his grace forever. When your only outlook was misery for eternity, the destiny he has given you in Christ is to sing and rejoice for eternity. You didn't choose that. You never would have chosen that. He chose it for you. And since there's nothing you could do to earn it, there's nothing you can do to lose it. His grace is set on you forever, and that's a drastic change. God's assessment of us, God's intervention for us, and finally God's gift to us. God's gift to us. Humans, humans are ironic people. Uh, and we're so ironic that we often miss uh, our own ironies a lot. Uh, and so one thing that I find highly ironic about humans is Santa Claus. Now, I don't know about these kids in the room and where their um, particular affections are for Santa Claus, but uh, it's near universal, right, to see God as some kind of cosmic policeman, policeman right? In almost all religion, religions, God is kind of like waiting in space, Grinding his knuckles, waiting for you to mess up. And, and if you obey the law, then you're good. We won't have a problem. Right? Just don't, don't do anything wrong. You won't go to jail. And, and, and that makes God a joyless God. He's just a joyless God. But what's ironic to me is that the person that we call the jolliest man, like, like people like, that's a name for Santa Claus. He's the jolliest guy, uh, is this guy who knows when we're sleeping. And he knows when we're awake, and he checks his list not once but twice to find out who's naughty or nice, and we sing about how great he is every year. God's the cosmic policeman, but Santa, oh, he's a jolly fellow. He's a jolly fellow. That's ironic to me. The belief that God is, is not good, um, that he's not overwhelmingly full of abundant and joyful grace and goodness has been the lie since the Garden of Eden. When, when Satan tempted Eve with the fruit, he tempted her to believe that God was holding back from her, that God was being stingy, that God is a joyless being who doesn't want his children to have joy. And since then, that lie has been perpetuated from generation to generation. But... It is central to God's being that he is a good, giving, overflowing God. Paul writes, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation from first to last is a gift of God. Even the faith necessary for you to trust in God came from God. 
He gave you Christ to suffer and die on your behalf. He gave you people who shared the gospel with you. He gave you people who prayed for you. He gave you the faith to believe. He gave you the repentance to turn. And he continually gives you grace for your sins. And he continually gives you faith so that you will persevere. And Christian, God desires you. Look at how much God desires you. Michael Reeves wrote, For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. Love is not something the Father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. His very nature is about going out and sharing his own fullness. And so that is what he is all about. In contrast to all other gods, the exuberant nature of this God means that his pleasure is rather a pleasure in giving and revealing to the creature rather than in receiving from the creature. Do you catch that? God's pleasure is in his giving and revealing and communicating and speaking and talking and doing everything for the creature, not in receiving from the creature. The joy and pleasure of the Father is not to receive life. It's his joy and pleasure to give life. It's who he is. It's who he has been and who he will be for eternity. And he saved you if you are a Christian to know that. Boasting is the opposite of that. Boasting, boasting is, is delighting in, in oneself. I did this. I made this decision. It's, it's because of me. What boasting fails to see is that everything you are and everything you have comes from God anyway. Boasting says, God is not a God who gives, so I had to do it myself. I had to pull up my own bootstraps. I had to do it this way. But pray says, God is a God who gives, and I want everyone else to enjoy the feast. But that's not all God gives. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't miss Paul's language here, right? In verses 1 and 2, we walk in sin and trespasses. But in verse 10, we're saved to walk in good works. These good works are a gift of God, too. And that's because God's commandments aren't a burden to the Christian, right? The, the Christian says with Psalm 19, your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. That's because just like the God who gives them, these commands are life-giving. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The good works of God that, that he gives us, it's not mysterious, right? It's not something that, that like we have to like pray and pray and pray and God all of a sudden will give us a special insight to our spiritual gift or whatever. No, his, his uh, good works are found in his word. And, and, and his, they're found in his word and we seek to, to live his word to transform our lives according to it. So Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
That is his word that he reveals what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in, in walking in sins and trespasses, we get death and wrath. Sin promises joy, but it ends up stealing it. It, it ends up taking your joy. It ends up taking life. But, but when we walk in the good works of God, we get more joy. We get, we get more life. There, there are no commission caps. You can walk in them as much as you want to cause you to, as you want, and you'll get as much as you want to. God's gift to us isn't a free ride to heaven. God's gift to us is life, life that he gives us now and that he promises later. God's gift to us is to save us, and his continual gift is that we walk in the life that he has given us. That means there's a drastic change from walking in sins and trespasses to walking in good works. A drastic change. So what this means is this. If you are not a Christian or, or you call yourself a Christian and you know who someone that calls themselves a Christian but they don't walk in these good works, then you must make every effort to know what's true of you. Whether it's true of you that you're dead and you just don't think you're dead or whether you're truly alive to Christ. But, but this also means that we, we ought to dwell on these truths. Like Paul isn't just trying to, trying to just beat a dead horse. The gospel and these truths found here, like these, these ten verses actually are like a perfect kernel of the gospel. When I say meditate on the gospel, it's these verses right here. That's, this is the gospel. And we need to dwell on these truths because the gospel should remain forever sweet to us. The reality of our drastic change, drastic salvation should remain sweet like honey. And, 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 and this goes along with that. One of my favorite prayers is this. It's from a, a Puritan book called uh, The Valley of Vision. And he prayed this. He wrote, keep me ever mindful of my natural state. God, help me to remember who, who I am apart from you. Help me to remember that I'm dead. Help me to remember that in my nature I, I stray, I wander constantly. In my nature I'm, I long for sin and I love sin. So keep me ever mindful of my natural state, but do not let me forget my heavenly title or the grace that can deal with every sin. Another last takeaway is be in the Word. God saved you and created you to walk in good works. And it's not just, okay, I need to be more kind. I, I need to do this. I need to do this. He, he wants you to walk in the joy of it and the life-giving nature of it. So what you do is you go deeper into this, deeper into the reality of who you are in Christ, and you dive into the word that God has given you. He's given you his word, 66 books in print, that you can always go to. You can always access his will. You can always seek him. And that's God's heart behind this, is that you, you Christian, you lowly 
Southwest Missourian would seek the God of this universe. And, and pray. Pray before you read the word. Don't just jump in. Pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you, to reveal his word, to reveal how you might continually walk in good works. Because we have such a drastic salvation, our lives are drastically changed. Let's pray. Father God, you didn't give, save us to, so that we could give you something that you lack. You didn't save us because we offer something to you that you need. God, you saved us simply to know how marvelous you are. You saved us to reverse the lie that you are not good. You saved us to know just how abundantly, immeasurably good you are. And that's what we have in the gospel as a God who holds nothing back. A God who, who crosses all barriers, breaks down all walls, pays whatever cost because of a divine and passionate love for your people. God, as if it wasn't enough that you created us, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die for us when we rejected you. As if that wasn't enough, Lord, he lived the life that we couldn't live. As if that wasn't enough, God, you raised him from the dead to give life to all who believe in him. As if that wasn't enough, you count their transgressions, our sins against him, and give us his life. You give us his righteousness. As if that wasn't enough, you count us righteous, but you also give us your spirit to sanctify us. As if that wasn't enough, you give us your word and reveal yourself perfectly to us. As if that wasn't enough, you give us faith to believe your word and grace and then the spirit to reveal your word to us. As if that wasn't enough, you give us other believers to encourage us, to redirect us, to show us our blind spots, to spur us on the faith. God, how abundantly good have you been to us in the gospel and much more. God, I suppose if, if the whole ocean were of ink and the sky a giant scroll, Lord, it would not be able to contain how great your love and how wonderful your goodness is. So, Father, don't let us walk as if we're dead in sins and trespasses. Help us to walk in the life that you have given us in Christ. Help us, because you have torn down every wall and broken every barrier. Help us to tear down every barrier that keeps us from pursuing Christ more and pursuing Christ harder. And it's all by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.